As we prepare to hear the message this morning, let's say together a prayer as we read from the Word. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. This morning's Scripture is Exodus 20, verses 1-17. through 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of For the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of your Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Honor your father and mother, and your, so your, you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good to be with you this morning. Welcome to in-person services in 2021. May uh, the Lord continue to provide us with the opportunities to ongoing worship of Him together as God's people. Amen. I'm reminded uh, as I read the Word uh, these days, in particular, how that God's interested, and I said this to the worship team, in forming for Himself not just a person, but a people, a people belonging to Him. And I also said to them this morning that I think it's easier if I just think it's just me and Jesus, but it's me and Jesus and all of us. And there's a sense in which God desires for us to reflect His holiness in this world as His community of believers. Therefore, we do not only care about each other, but we pray for one another that we would continue to bear witness to the one who is faithful. Amen? This morning, I know that in our congregation, there are many, many needs, some that you are aware of, some I'm not at liberty to share with you. But I want to take some time as pastor this morning to pray with you and for you. I want to encourage you to, in this season of life in particular, uh, pray for the church, 
Pray for its unity. Pray for her witness in the world. Pray for pastors who need encouragement. Pray for church boards and leaders who need wisdom and discernment. Pray for each other because we all are walking through quite a different season of life. And of this we are assured that when we seek the Lord, we will find Him. And so I pray for you, and I trust you will pray for others. Why don't we take a moment now to draw close to the Lord in prayers. We prepare to hear His Word, but also to acknowledge to acknowledge the challenges, to acknowledge the difficulties, and to find the posture of faith and trust in the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we often dare to ask or believe. Join me now in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the grace that comes from you. A grace that is not only a saving grace, but a grace that seeks to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is important for us as your people to begin with grace because grace is what enables us to become who you want us to be. Without it, we are incapable, unable to save ourselves. Every effort we may make in our own strength without your grace, your mercy, your strength, and your spirit will fail. But as we rely upon your grace, we open our lives to a dependence upon you so that we would be filled, we would be empowered, we will be led, we would be guided, we will be blessed. So that we may be a blessing in our world unto your glory. And so this morning... Whatever the burdens are that we carry, may you meet our needs. Lift our burdens today. Remind us that you are greater than our circumstances, and yet you care deeply about our circumstances. Remind us that our hope is to be found not in anybody else but you. You are our source of hope, and so where hope is needed, I pray for restoration of hope today. I pray where reconciliation is needed, that through the power of your Spirit, you would enable us to be the humble, confessing community of faith who loves you and loves one another as Jesus has told us to. And this morning, through the humble reflections on your word, I pray that you would be heard, you would be honored, glory would go to you, truth would be spoken from the love and the care of a God who is faithful. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've heard over the years some Christians say to me as a pastor, why do we really need the Old Testament? We'd save ourselves a whole lot of headaches if we just were New Testament people. People of the New Covenant, people of Jesus is sometimes how we talk about it. And yet we find that Jesus uh, understood who he was by looking back to the Old Testament. In fact, I would suggest to you, we cannot fully understand who Jesus is and what he would do without the Old Testament. As one biblical scholar said recently as I was reading and preparing this series of sermons, he said, what Bible did Jesus read? It wasn't the New Testament. Jesus was looking back to Israel's scriptures, to the Old Testament, and he there saw himself as standing in continuity with it. Another way of saying it is, Jesus came to fulfill what God started in the Old, and in order to understand what Jesus fulfilled, we must understand what he begun. 
And so when we look to the beginning of Scripture, we begin to understand the scope of God's plan. We understand the depth of His plan. We begin to understand that when Jesus commissions those 12 disciples in Matthew 20, chapter 28, it is not the first time that God called a people and sent them into the world. We understand that what Jesus is doing in the Gospels is echoing back to what God has begun in all creation when he called Abraham and said, you will be the father of many. Those people will live in my ways and they would bring glory to my name by blessing the world. That's good preaching. Why is that important to us? Jesus, you know, after his, uh, his resurrection, uh, was walking with a few disciples in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus. You remember this? And as he is walking, these disciples look tremendously dismayed. They are downcast because the one that they had placed their hope in was brutally tortured and killed on a Roman cross. And they are so dismayed by what they saw because in their understanding of the Messiah, they did not see his suffering. They did not see the cross. In fact, it is in Matthew chapter 24, or in Luke chapter 24, verse 25, where Jesus responds to their dismay in these words. He says, how foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken of. You know what Jesus is teaching his disciples? He's saying, if you read the Old Testament well, I would not be a surprise and neither would be my cross. If you understood what God had destined throughout time and history since the creation and foundation of this world, you would understand that what has just happened had to happen. And I, I, I fear that if we begin, as many of us in the West have begun our Christian journey on the individual, and I believe that's important, that God wants to save us. I don't want you to leave these series of messages believing I don't believe in personal salvation. But I want us to grab a hold of the greater plan of God's redemption in which our own salvation only makes sense. And in order for us to understand our own salvation, we must look to how God saves people in the Bible. And it begins with a people he calls unto himself, a people that according to our text had just been enslaved by Egypt. They had been freed through the powerful and miraculous hand of God. Plagues that came upon the powers that be to set the people free, marching through a sea that God held back by the power of his hand. They arrive at Mount Sinai three months after their escape, if you would put it that way, from Egypt. And it is here at this mountain that God reveals to them the purpose of their liberation. Put it differently, they were not just saved to be free, they were saved to belong to God for God's purpose. When we as Christians think of our salvation, I pray that we would have the same understanding that we are liberated to belong so that we would bear witness to who God is in our world. Our salvation is the beginning to the revelation of God throughout history. That's good preaching. When we make it the end, as Israel tended to think, uh, I, 
I think if you read Old Testament history well, you will find that when Israel forgets that they've been liberated for purpose, they act in ways unbecoming to God. When Israel behaves that the liberation of God was just to ensure their own freedom and not to make them a means of witness in the world, they lost what made them the people of God. When the church operates with this mentality that we are saved to simply be saved, we forget that our salvation serves the purpose of God. Therefore, how we live matters. It matters greatly. How we live today matters beyond just my assurance of salvation. It matters because how I live brings witness to who God is. I am intimately tied into the calling of Abraham through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we share in the same calling and the same destiny that God has proclaimed from the beginning. I call for myself a people who will belong to me. They will walk in my ways so that they would bring glory to my name as they bless the world. This perspective is a biblical one. It challenges an individual perspective. It challenges a westernized way of encroaching upon the biblical narrative and making it just about me. It challenges us to understand that when Jesus calls his disciples, he does not call them just to a particular way of life for their sake, but a particular way of life for the glory of God's sake. When Jesus kneels in Gethsemane and prays that prayer, that paradigm-setting uh, uh, paradigm prayer in the garden of Gethsemane, he prays, not my will, but thy will be done. There's a sense in which to become the people of God, not only are we liberated from that which enslaves, thanks be to God. We do not have to live as slaves. We do not have to live as those in bondage. I want you to understand the liberating power of God is true and real, that there is no power that can hold us from what God can do and save us from. Come on now, this is good news. But as he frees us, he calls us, he names us. Do you know where he names Israel? He names them in the liberated space. He names them after they have been freed from Egypt. In order to be the people of God, one have to be dislocated from the things that Keep one bound. Whew. And so we come to these ten words, these ten commands. God answers at Mount Sinai why he liberates the people. It is so that they would be in relationship with him and reveal him to the world. This relationship would have to redefine them from the ways in which they thought about themselves. Slaves don't rest. Slaves work tirelessly under the ruthless expectations and demands of a ruthless king. 
But God calls the people out, liberates them, and there at Mount Sinai would call them into a relationship that would help them to set apart, set aside that which once have laid claim to who they are. I've said this before to you, and I'm preaching this again over and over, and hopefully over the years that I've been here, it starts to sink in, that we are called out of a way of life into a particular way, not just away from, but into a particular way of living. It is at Mount Sinai where God names the people. You are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The function of priests in the Old Testament in particular served, there was two primary functions. One, they mediated the word of God to the people. This is what the word says. This is what God says. And secondly, they enabled the people to reconcile with God through sacrifices. When God names the people a a kingdom of priests, he's saying this is the work not just of the priest. This is the work of the community. The kind of people I'm calling you to be is a people that brings the word to others and helps others to come to God. I don't think I can state it any more clearly, but the priestly work of the church is not just for the priestly ordained minister. It is the calling of God from biblical times and the calling of Israel throughout to the disciples and beyond. But second, God would name them as a holy people. Now, here's where it gets problematic for many people, especially if they've been raised in the Nazarene church. We hear this word holiness, and much many of us kind of squirm at the idea, don't call me holy. It's kind of like, don't put too much expectation on me, Stu. <laughs> I, I don't want that kind of mantle. Maybe this will help you. You know, holiness in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, uh, the word itself has just this root meaning to be separate or distinct. So things were separated and called holy. People could be separated and called holy. And there's a sense in which holiness is about being set apart, being different, not just for different sake, but so that your difference would bear the eerie resemblance of the God who is unlike any other God. In other words, holiness serves the purpose of revealing the holy God. And in our particularity, in the unique ways in which the community of faith decides to live its life, it reveals who God is in the world. That holiness is a calling to live in a way that is countercultural, not so that we can thumb, uh, you know, turn our noses up at people and say, look at how bad you are, but so that our holiness would reveal who the holy God is. I, I, I don't know if this is making sense to you. In my mind, this is just clicking. It's just, this is fantastic. But God calls them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy people. Uh, holiness is uh, something that God desires from us as followers of Jesus, not just individually, but as a community of faith, because there's more at stake than just my personal purity. There's more at stake than just my own peace. 
Listen, does God care about our peace? Absolutely. Does he care about your holy living? Absolutely. But all of that, together with God's people, declares the works of God in the world and makes him known. He cares about our holiness because our holiness matters to his great plan for creation. Therefore, if these enslaved people are going to live differently, they have to have a redefinition of how they thought about themselves. They have to have a renaming, if you will. Now, the Ten Commandments, I've heard many people make comments on them over the years. Some people will say, you know, I wish we'd just bring it back to the school again. Have it on the walls. I mean, like I, I, I think you can put a lot of stuff on walls. It doesn't mean it means anything, right? But I know what people are saying. People are saying, if we could just get back to a to a, a place where people honored the, the rules, followed the, the commandments, we'd be in a better world. And I, I tend to agree with them. But you know what Jesus does? He, he teaches a, a way that, that explains to us that the purpose of God with giving the law has always been to reveal who he is. And there's a sense in which you can follow the rules like the Pharisee, Pharisees often done. We give them a bad rap. You can cross your T's and dot your I's and still not, get this, reveal the God who is in love with the world and wants to save it. You can still be a person of the law without being a person of grace. You can be a person that keeps the letter without keeping the purpose. You can be a person who follows the rules without being transformed by God's love. Do the rules matter? Absolutely. Is God calling us to live in a particular way? You better believe he is. But let us never make the rules the sum end of God's purpose. Let us understand that how we obey is ultimately serving a greater purpose than just God's pleasure with you and me. It is so that we would stand in line with his purpose. So the people are in call to embody Holiness. Holiness serves this incredible purpose that God has placed before the people. Jesus, when he was asked in the gospel, tell us what is the greatest commandment, would say this. It is to love the Lord with everything. And then he adds to love your neighbor as yourself. When we read back the words of Jesus back into the Old Testament, as he often did, look back, we understand that what Jesus is doing is bringing all of what is said in these ten words into two succinct statements. He is saying that the love of God and the love of our fellow man are the essential ways in which we live out the life of holiness. And so, when we briefly, and I will be brief, and... Someone said to me, don't ask people to say amen because you're brief. You know, sometimes you need an amen. You just need an amen. I don't know sometimes when to ask for it, so now I'm asking for it. Just amen, you know. These uh, words that are given is revelatory words. These are relational words. And so here's how I want to share what I could probably preach on for 10 weeks in just a few minutes. I think what 
the commandments teach us is that who we worship matters to our witness. Now I know. Stu, I wish you came up with a better one. I kind of understand that. But do you see how it begins? It begins that you shall have no other gods. It's only this one God. And worship is an interesting word because simply put, it means to ascribe worth to something. That's kind of the base meaning of the word. And while it's easy to uh, look at other cultures and, you know, cultures in which we can easily identify what the idols of those cultures are, it is less discerning in our culture to recognize that idolatry is alive and well and counterintuitive to the witness of God. If we take as a a base definition worship as ascribing worth to something in a disproportionate way, in a way that transcends perhaps measurement, then it opens up a whole possibility of idols in our culture. Things that vie for the true place of God in our lives. Things that disrupt and disconnect us from the purpose of God for this world. Simply put, Israel could not make their God known if they put other gods in front of him. And we cannot be a holy people when we worship at the altar of consumerism, materialism, individualism, and so many other isms. Whatever stands before the primacy of God, I know I'm saying that, and that's the only words I can find, to you and me, that is a stumbling block to our worship. And in this season of life, in this wonderful dislocating season of life where we may relate more to Israel in the desert than we like to. We are thirsty for community. We are hungry for true fellowship. Can I get an amen? You see my heart? I am tired, tired, tired. Can I get a witness? Are you tired? When will this end? How long shall we wait? Do you feel like I'm actually praying the Psalms right now of lament? We are invited to examine our lives and our priorities and to ask ourselves a simple yet profound question. Am I worshiping the true and living God? Let me relocate for you the word worship in this context. It is not only that which happens here, though this is important. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 would say that the worship of God requires a total giving of oneself over as a living sacrifice unto God. You know what he's saying? He's saying you cannot worship God unless you're all in every part of you, all of your life, wherever you go. This to us is the scope of worship. I, uh, I'm happy you're here. Clearly you can see that because I'm, I'm so much more relaxed with people here. I don't know who's watching me through the, the screen. 
or what they're doing, you know. Uh, but I, I want to pause here for a second and, and speak to you as, as, as followers of Jesus who love Jesus, who wants to live in his ways. And I, and I, want, I, want, I want us all to just, just kind of sink into this reality. That to worship God is to live a life in every sphere of our lives that shines a light on who he is. I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've been thinking that there are some of you who works in the secular world, and, and I too worked in the secular marketplace. If you want to hear my experiences, I was terrible in administration. Learned the hard way I should not be an administrator. I ended up counseling every person that was coming to my office for administrative care. <laughs> I soon realized I was an administrator. You know what I've come to realize? I've come to realize as your pastor that perhaps some of the work God is calling me to in relationship to what you do day in and day out is to preach and inform and educate, share and inspire you to consider that there is two places in your day-to-day -day life in which God can be made known. And not just... Not just in what we say, but in who we worship. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, that if worship is assigning worth, then how is God as a priority showing up in your day-to-day -day work? How is your relationship with others being challenged in such a way that they would notice that there's something about your value system that is contrary. Uh, you know, I, I think that for some of us in the, in the marketplace, the opportunity to do good work, to honor the Lord, to, to serve Him and by, by, by being committed to excellence and working hard and giving our best, this too can bring glory to God. I think that we ought to stop limiting where worship can happen because where worship happens, witness happens. And what we do not often realize is the things we worship, others know what it is. They know what's important to us. They know what's at the top of our list. They know what matters. Now that I'm talking about work, let me quickly move to this pivoting command. You know, if, 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 if the invitation is that we would worship the Lord our God and Him alone, we also have this invitation in the commandments to learn how to rest well, because in resting, we reveal who God is. Amen. There's nothing more significant than recognizing in a Western culture driven by materialism and gain and individuality that the invitation to rest is an assault on the very economics that suggests this to us, that our value and our security comes from what we do and is not located in who he is. You're going to have to go back, rewind that, and listen to it. Sabbath rest, as one of my favorite authors said, is not primarily about us. It's actually about how God wants to form us. Learning that, that we can trust him when we are not at work because he's in control is one of the most significant things that is absent in our culture. We serve a restless God. And according to the commandments, if you don't believe me, go and read it again. 
God says this, I rested, therefore you must rest. I created for six days, but I knew when to take a break. You, if you are to be born and bearers of my image, must learn how to rest so that the world would know who I am. I I often think that the mantra in the Western culture is, Oh, we like you more when you look like you're burnt out. We value you more when you expend all of your energy. Or perhaps, more insidious than that, is this false narrative that we live by. If we are to rest, will we be okay? (laughs) I think it's quite significant. That the commands are not just understood as words to be obeyed, but words that reveal when we obey them. Ah. To rest on the Sabbath is to honor and bear witness to God. Let me ask you some very personal questions. What kind of things do you need to rest from? I think Sabbath can be a subversive, you know, like the, the, the word that has this connotation. It can change our value systems. I think here's the way in which Sabbath can subvert some things. Uh, Sabbath can, uh, can subvert this false pride that says we are the masters of our own destiny. If, if there's anything that the pandemic has told us is we're not really in control. You know what, 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 what Sabbath can do when it's practiced regularly in the life? It can bring peace to the anxiety and the question of whether we will be okay. You know what, what Sam, uh, Sabbath seems to, 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 to want to subvert in our lives is that the, the competition and this need to get ahead and possess and have and conquer and be more can be brought under the grace of God so that we can be a people of peace and joy. I think Sabbath wants to subvert the ways in which materialism and coveting and wanting often dictates and sets the course of our life. Jesus is the one who says, I didn't make man for the Sabbath. (laughs) Another thing to do In the long list of religious things, another thing to check off, but here's what he says. I made Sabbath for man so that man would know who I am and make me known in this world. Finally, not just who we worship and how we rest, but how we relate to others. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. You look at those last set of commands, and it deals with honoring parents. You could preach on that, right? Key commandment to living a long life. 
I, I like what one commentator said about this, and with this I'll close. I've got a, just a few more points. Parents are the ones from whom we derive life. To honor them is to honor the life we've been given. The way we love our parents is a reflection on our love for God. Uh, I think sometimes holiness needs to show up in the ordinary and given relationships we have. What good is our witness when at home things are falling apart, right? What good is our witness um, if we cannot learn to love and respect one another in the ways that God desires? Uh, some of these relational uh, commands deal with the value of life. And I'm just going to say a few things here. It seems that Christians value only certain kinds of forms of life these days. But you know what the commands say? I'm going to be a little controversial in my statement that all life matters. We, we cannot just pick based on whether a fetus is born or unborn. We cannot just pick whether a person is indigenous or not. We cannot just pick because of the color of skin, the kind of life we value. We, we have to be consistent as the people of God. If life matters to us, then all life matters. We tend to live in a, in a culture, and, and I, want to, I want to just stress to you, you see how much I've been praying about this? There's a lot more at stake when we live contrary to the love that God has for this world and the ways of God. Not only the value of human life, but the value of right relations. Right relationship with others can be one of the most difficult things to do. Well, can I get an amen? Let me start by saying, I've been wrong. I know, Henry, this is shocking you. I've needed mercy and forgiveness and truth. The church often thinks and operates this way, that if something is not right within us, that uh, it can be a stumbling block to the witness of God. This is true. But God is a redemptive God who would take what is not right through a people who are committed to revealing who He is and who humble themselves in community with one another for His namesake to be reconciled not only to Him, but to one another. I'm just going to say some things. I've been here now 12 years, right? 12 is like a holy number. It is. <laughs> I want to say some things. The church is not a perfect place. Shock anybody? The church is not a place where we all kind of have it all figured out. But the church 
becomes a very unhealthy place when we do not practice the kind of forgiving and mercy and grace that we ought to extend one to another because such grace and mercy has been extended to us. And more significantly, such grace and mercy reveals who God is to a world that does not know grace or mercy. Jesus is the one who shows us how to worship. He shows us how to rest and how to relate to one another. We confess him as our Lord this morning and commit ourselves to his ways. And so I invite you to pray with me as I close our time together. This is a prayer that I've written to invite those of us who felt uh, or sensed that the Lord is inviting us into a deeper walk with him to pray today. May these words become our words as his people. Lord, today we confess that we have fallen short of your plan for our lives. We have been tempted to worship lesser gods. We have replaced you with desires and things that is not you. Forgive us today. Lord, we ask that you may grant us the grace to rest in you. To find peace in knowing that even when we are not at work, you are in control. May we today cast our cares upon you knowing that you care for us. And then, dear Father, we ask that you would help us in our relationships with one another. May we seek to be reconciled to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Grant us the humility, the courage, and the strength to seek peace with each other for your name's sake. Help us to know that when we do so, we bear witness to who you are in our world. Amen.